When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go Beyond Reality. Good evening, good morning, and welcome. It is Beyond Reality Radio. I'm your host, J.V. Johnson. Thank you for joining us tonight. If you're listening on one of the great radio stations carrying the show around the country, thank you for that. And uh, if you get a chance, thank them for that, for carrying the program. If there's a station in your area that doesn't carry the program that they should, drop them a line. Let them know about Beyond Reality Radio. We love to get more affiliates into our affiliate family. And we love uh, having you along, by the way. If you're on uh, listening on the YouTube stream, hello. If you haven't found the YouTube stream, go to youtube.com slash C slash JV Johnson. Or you can just search JV Johnson. It's a live stream of the program there if you don't get it on a radio station near you. Plus, there's an archive of shows there as well. So anyway, we have a great show tonight, of course. Uh, I've been talking about it all week. We're going to be talking about uh, Stonehenge tonight. Graham Phillips is a returning guest to the program. He's a historical investigator and an author, and he's going to be talking about Stonehenge and how it was used as an ancient healing sanctuary and a, a calendar. Now, we've all seen images of Stonehenge. We've all had an opportunity to consider what it may or may not have been built for, and also to consider how it could have been constructed by people with very, very primitive tools. And uh, our guest tonight, Graham Phillips, is going to talk about all of that and more. It's uh, one of the great mysteries of the ancient world, and we're going to be discussing it tonight on Beyond Reality Radio. Looking ahead to tomorrow, James Willis will be here. He's an author and a speaker. We're going to be talking about the one of the uh, most fascinating chapters in rock and roll history. There are a lot of interesting chapters in rock and roll history. This one is uh, one of those chapters that was written by the most successful, uh, commercially successful, that is, uh, rock bands in rock and roll history. And, of course, I'm talking about the Beatles. And in the late 60s, it was rumored that Paul McCartney had died in a car accident. And there were clues, while it wasn't announced publicly, and it was actually being hidden by the fact that there was a double in his place, the rest of the Beatles put clues into their albums, into their music, into their lyrics on the album covers. And uh, fans and uh media personalities looked very hard and long at all of these things to try to figure out the clues and get the real story. And that's what we're going to be talking about Thursday night with James Willis. We're going to talk about the Paul is Dead conspiracy. And uh, that'll be a very, very interesting discussion, of course. And then Friday night, a best of show. If you're a fan of uh, numerology, you're going to remember, uh, and if you've been listening to this program for a while, you're going going to remember a guest by the name of Glynis McCants, She's known as the Numbers Lady. She'll be back with us on Monday night's program. We'll be talking about numerology. And then we'll be uh, taking calls from listeners so that she can do numerology readings for them. That's Monday night. And then Tuesday, uh, Daniel Freedom will be here to talk 
about the Bible from a scientific perspective. He is a religion and mysticism student and an engineer. And uh, he says that we've got to, to take a different look at the Bible. And that's what we'll be doing on Tuesday night's program. And I, I have to <laughs> go ahead to Wednesday of next week. It's, we're a week out now. Um, but another returning guest, and this is exciting for me as well, Cindy McGill will be here. Cindy McGill is a master dream interpreter. And she's going to unlock what your dreams are telling you. We'll talk about dreams, what the general meanings of these dreams are, and then she will take callers as well to discuss what your dreams mean, um, if you feel like sharing them, that is. And if you want to join our discussion tonight, later in the program, we'll open up the phone lines at 844-687-7669. Before you get off your smartphone or your computer for the night, uh, please take a moment and go to Facebook and follow uh, the Beyond Reality Radio Facebook page. Also follow my page at JV Johnson. Appreciate you doing that. So with that, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, we will bring our guest in. Again, we're talking with Graham Phillips tonight, historical investigator. The topic is Stonehenge on Beyond Reality Radio. Did you know that online retailers like Amazon have constant deals that can save you money on the things you buy every day? It's no joke. Save 40%, 50%, even 80% on great products. And all you have to do is know about them. Noodle Shark is the way to be alerted when something good is coming your way. Noodle Shark is the social media page that lists great deals that not only save you money, but give you the deals before anyone else has them. All you have to do is find Noodle Shark on Facebook. Search it as The Noodle Shark. That's The Noodle Shark. Because you deserve to save too. Become a Shark and save. Welcome back to the show. It's Beyond Reality Radio. I'm JV. Thanks for being here again. Our guest tonight, Graham Phillips, returning to the program. He's been on before, a historical investigator. His website is his name, GrahamPhillips.net, and he's got a new book out. It's called Wisdom Keepers of Stonehenge, the Living Libraries and Healers of Megalithic Culture. Graham, welcome back to Beyond Reality Radio. It's a real pleasure to have you back here. And it's a pleasure to be back on again. So you've got uh, just a, a number of very, very fascinating books and topics that you've investigated. Um, but before we get into those and before we get into Stonehenge specifically, I noted that you started your career, at least part of it, as a radio journalist and a broadcaster. Yeah, I mean, it's many years ago now, um, back in the early 1980s, I was a... Um, a broadcaster for the BBC in the UK. And I did a, I mean, it was very rare to have programs about the unexplained in those days, but yeah. I actually did a weekly show uh, about uh, mysteries, the unexplained, the paranormal. Um, so I was kind of like uh, at the cutting edge of um what everybody does these days. Well, <laughs> you anyway. <laughs> yeah, I would say that is cutting edge. I know that, um, you know, in American radio, uh, there, there have been several characters, but Art Bell uh, specifically really created the genre as we know it today. Uh, those of us in this kind of broadcasting owe a lot to him. And now I guess uh, maybe we owe a little bit to you as well. Well, uh, that's the coast to coast thing, wasn't it? Yeah, so when did yeah. he start? When did he start? I think he started in the early nineties with coast to coast. Yeah, then it's down to me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we thank you for your for uh, blazing the trail for the rest of us. So, um, again, like sixteen books on a number of very very fascinating and interesting topics. Any one of them would fill uh, an entire one of our programs and more. But what got you started? What was the first thing that you tackled? 
Well, after I was working as a journalist uh, with the BBC, I, I became an ed editor of a magazine called Strange Phenomena, which, um, well, obviously, from its title, you can guess that we investigated all sorts of things. Um, but I found that in looking into the supernatural and UFOs and all that, you could never really get an answer. You could interview people who had claimed to have seen all sorts of strange things, but you could never really get any hard, concrete proof of to what was going on. But one mystery I found which was absolutely fascinating was the story of King Arthur. I mean, although there's supernatural elements involved in the medieval tale, behind it all there seemed to have been an actual real historical figure. And when I looked into that, finding the evidence of whether King Arthur did or didn't exist, I thought, I like these historical mysteries, and I think I'm going to start to investigate those. So I first of all did it for the magazine, and then afterwards I began writing books about it. And since then, uh, it included obviously King Arthur. Then I moved on to things like the Holy Grail, was that real? The Ark of the Covenant and all sorts of other historical mysteries. So that's kind of how I got into it. The, um, the, the story specifically about King Arthur, now everyone's heard the legend and everybody's heard of the Knights of the Round Table, Camelot, all of those things. How is it that some, uh, someone with, with uh, particularly a king with that kind of stature, can actually be lost to history in a way. And although we do have the legends, you know, there is a real question as to whether he existed uh, actually. And it seems as though you've uncovered evidence that he does. How does something like that get lost to history? Well, the stories that we know about Arthur fighting dragons, rescuing damsels in distress and all that sort of thing were fictitious accounts written during the Middle Ages from around about 1100 onwards. But they were based on earlier snippets of fragmentary accounts of a relatively down-to-earth guy who was fighting invaders of Britain many years earlier, around the year 500 AD. And the reason why this leader of the Britons was pretty much forgotten, except for in a few fragmented documents hidden in old monasteries, was because the Roman Empire had just collapsed and for centuries Britain had fallen into an era known as the Dark Ages from which, well, there was anarchy throughout the country and very few written records were composed to have survived until the Middle Ages anyway. So it's not only Arthur who was completely forgotten, but virtually any other king or high-status individual that lived during the Dark Ages. Another such uh, character that you did some research and wrote about was Robin Hood, right? Yes, he's another one. And uh, he, you determined that there's, there's uh, actual historical fact there. Yes, again, very often when you've got some mythical place, person, uh, artifact, you will find that there is something that started it off. It wasn't just somebody woke up one morning and thought, well, let's just invent him like Harry Potter or something. <laughs> um, and Robin Hood does seem to have been based on an historical figure who lived um, during the Middle Ages 
and was fighting against a very unpopular British king, English king at the time. And his story gradually developed over the years uh, until it became the rather romantic tale we know today. But there's one thing I can tell you about the historical Robin Hood that I discovered. He, he did rob from the rich, but he never actually got round to giving to the poor. <laughs> <laughs> that makes a little difference in the story, doesn't it? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, you've also, you've also, as you mentioned, looking looked into some historic or some uh, biblical artifacts or religious relics. Things like the Holy Grail and Ark of the Covenant have been, um, you know, on people's uh, treasure hunters' hit lists for a very, very long time. Um, have you found evidence that these things exist? Well, as far as the Holy Grail is concerned, I've actually found one. Uh, When I say one, (laughs) it's because going back to uh, the Middle Ages and the Dark Ages before that, there were a number of different stories about what the Holy Grail was supposed to be. Some said it was a chalice. Some said it was a platter or plate. And others said it was a um, a small perfume jar. Uh, The reason being that in some accounts it was a perfume jar is because it was supposed to belong to to Mary Magdalene, who was one of Jesus's female followers. All of these items belong to various disciples. And the common thread is that they used it to collect a few drops of Christ's blood during the crucifixion. And Thereafter, these items became imbued with all sorts of miraculous powers, healing powers. And the item I searched for was this cup that had supposed to belong to Mary Magdalene, which was originally in a, a perfume jar. And following a whole series of clues left by a, an English family who claimed to have inherited this, eventually discovered that somebody had found it in the early 1900s and that that man's great-great-granddaughter still lived not far from where I did, and this item was stored away in her attic. So, um, yeah, I have a grail. <laughs> so is this, is this the item that uh, caused a little distress between you and the Vatican? Uh, yes. When the, when the book came out in the early 90s, 1990s, <laughs> Uh, what happened was that it got a lot of publicity, and particularly in Italy. And then a number of churches started to come forward and saying, hold on, this guy in England can't have found the Holy Grail because we have it in our church. And it started quite a row. And one Italian journalist went and spoke to somebody at the Vatican and said, look, there's all these people claiming to have found the Holy Grail, you, you know, sort it out, Wh- which is the real one. And it was announced that um, the Pope himself was actually considering these claims. He was actually reading my book. Oh, wow. Um, the Pope at the time was Polish, and luckily enough, the book had been published in Poland. Um, so perhaps, presumably he read that. Every Friday afternoon i think it is he used to anyway come out onto the balcony overlooking st peter's square and make various announcements and he came out and he addressed the crowd and the media and said that he would considered all these particular uh, 
um, applicants for being the Holy Grail uh, and had decided that none of them was the real one because he had it in the Vatican. I thought, what? I mean, that's the first time they ever said that. So that rather put a mocker on that one. Um, although, so the church doesn't accept that this is a real Holy Grail. But I have a lot of provenance, a lot of historical evidence to back up the fact that it, it may not have had miraculous healing powers. It may never actually have belonged to Jesus's disciples, but it certainly was an item that started the stories of the Grail during the Middle Ages. Our guest tonight is Graham Phillips. He's a historical investigator and an author, uh, author of actually 16 books or so. His newest book is called Wisdom Keepers of Stonehenge, the Living Libraries and Healers of Megalithic Culture. Uh, Graham, you've been called by some as the real-life Indiana Jones. That's, uh, I would think, an honor. What do you, is that a compliment, you think? I was actually called that on... Uh, when, when the... Indi- when the Indiana Jones films, all the four of them had been made, they did a um, a CD, sorry, a DVD. You mm-hmm. remember those? Sure. We used to do it before Netflix. <laughs> <laughs> um, and on that, the producers decided to uh, put together a uh, you know an extra disc about people who had really searched for these items. And I was included there, having searched for the Ark of the Covenant and the Holy Grail. And it was them who described me as a real-life Indiana Jones. So, um, yes, when um, George Lucas describes me, or at least people working on his behalf, as a real-life Indiana Jones, that's a compliment. Yeah, I'd I'd say that is. You... um, uh get to the bottom of a lot of historical mysteries. Sometimes you come up with good news and maybe sometimes you come up with bad news. Uh, You know, when you uncover the truth about mythical figures like King Arthur or whomever it happens to be, I imagine you're met with a little bit of uh, a mixed reaction from people. How do people feel when you start to remove the cloud of mystery from some of this stuff? Actually, quite well. Um, I mean, archaeologists tend to be very conservative in their opinions and they'll never come out and say well graham phillips has found the grave of king arthur for example which is one of the uh, one of the claims that i had made and with in my opinion justification but they did say well graham phillips has found what appears to be the grave of a person a high status individual from the time that arthur existed um but um, whether it's King Arthur or not, well, we can't say until we actually excavate. And unfortunately, because the place where I believed he was buried was on protected ground, it had a preservation order on it, no one could actually dig to prove whether I was right or wrong. But they did do geophysics, um, that is using grounds penetrating radar to see what was under the ground and there was a grave there so yes um i get support but people stop short of saying that i've actually found what i'm claiming to have found so uh, yeah if the reaction isn't too bad to be quite honest your new book called uh, Wisdom Keepers of Stonehenge. Um, obviously, if you're looking at things like the Holy Grail, King Arthur, Robin Hood, um, 
the Ark of the Covenant. You know, there's there's a there's kind of a hit list of uh, mysteries that exist in this world, and Stonehenge is going to come up on that list at some point. When did it come up, and how did it come up on your list? Well, it came up because I'd run out of other things to do. <laughs> um, it's uh, I would always been fascinated by Stonehenge, but there was nothing new to be said about it. Um, most people had worked out that it seems to have been built as some kind of ancient astronomical calculator. In other words, Stonehenge built around 5,000 years ago had the stones aligned in such a way that if you were at the centre of the circle, various stones aligned with important celestial events, for example, the midsummer sunrise, uh, uh, various bright stars, uh, first rising at, at some point in the year over particular stones. And archaeologists had long suspected that it was some sort of way of observing the stars, perhaps as uh, a means to decide when in the year you are to grow certain crops, reap them, harvest them, um, and that's tantalum, that sort of thing. Um, and that's about as far as it had gone but over the last few years, there have been tremendous advances made scientifically in how various ancient stones uh, can be dated. For example, what they do, uh, radiocarbon dating can't date stone, but it can date organic matter, something that was, that was once living. And bone fragments and other organic matter found beneath the stones when archaeologists have dug down underneath them can tell when the stones were set into place and this form of dating plus something else which is called thermoluminescence which is a way of dating ancient pottery has come on leaps and bounds in the last few years and the discoveries that have been made about exactly when certain ancient monuments were built has pretty much changed the entire um, outlook about when, where and why a lot of these stone circles like Stonehenge were built. So in the last couple of years, there has been brand new stuff and archaeologists are very slow to publish their stuff. So I went around investigating what the archaeologists had found and brought out a book to beat them to it. Now, Stonehenge is the probably the most famous uh, um, structure of its kind, but it's not the only one, right? The stone circles are actually rather common throughout the uh, the UK. Yes, uh, Stonehenge is is certainly the most famous because it is the only stone circle to have those arches all around it. Um, so it was the most elaborate stone circle. But from around about 5,000 years ago onwards for centuries, the people of the British Isles built thousands of stone circles, an estimated 5,000. Wow. Of which there are over 1,000 that still survive in various states of preservation. So it was, but it is a unique British thing, or at least Brit, uh, in Britain and Ireland. Uh, the where other megalithic stone monuments built in uh, Europe, in for notably northern France. But stone, stone circles are a particularly English phenomena. And um, 
so yeah it's just one of an elaborate network of other circles of standing stones do any of these structures uh, i almost think i i read something about this rather recently about stonehenge but do any of these structures have any kind of inscription or runes in them no uh any inscriptions found on stones date from a later period when christians came along and decided, well, these were probably put there by servants of the devil, so they'll put a cross on it or something to purify the thing. Um, The Vikings, when they arrived in Britain around a 1,000 years ago, just over a 1,000 years ago, they tended to put runes on stone circles. But Britain had no form of writing before the Romans turned up, around 2,000 years ago. So for 3,000 years, there were no forms of writing, although some stones, and not many, do have um, designs on them, like uh, spirals. Uh, Nobody really knows what they mean. Some people think that they may be associated with plotting the cycles of the moon. But as for writing, no. So Britain and Till throughout the whole what they call the megalithic period when people were building these stone circles, megalith incidentally coming from the old Greek meaning large stone. Uh, So throughout the whole of this megalithic period, there was no form of writing. So Britain really was in a prehistoric age. And how we find out about them is through archaeology rather than written records. With so many of these structures around the British Isles and understanding that those cultures had no means for rapid or any significant type of transportation that didn't involve you know, great deals of, a great deal of time, how is it that it seems so commonplace and coordinated? Were these people all of the same, well, I'll use the word religious background, although I don't know that it would have been considered a religion, or were they all uh, ruled or governed by a common uh, individual or force? Or how, how, is, how does it seem so connected? Well, Around the time when the first stone circles were built, the first civilizations were getting going in Egypt and in Mesopotamia, which is modern Iraq and that area, and also in part of India. Um, But those cultures had a central authority. They had a king. They had armies to keep law and order. They had developed uh, bronze weapons and bronze tools. And but. Britain at this time was still in the Stone Age. It still used stone tools um, made from flint and animal bones, that sort of thing. And they lived in, they didn't live in big cities. They lived in small settlements of perhaps just a few hundred people. The places they lived in were circular stone-walled huts with thatched roofs. Um, they they knew about farming so that they could grow crops and they had began to domesticate animals, but they were far from a civilization as we would now understand it. There were no city dwellers. There seemed to be, from the archaeological evidence, absolutely no form of central authority. There was no infrastructure like a network of roads. They hadn't even got round to using horses or any other animals like oxen as beasts of burden. So it was walking everywhere and carrying everything with you. And so even though the British Isles by 
American standards is a, a fairly small place about the size of a, a, a state in America. It's a large area when you're just walking around. And these communities tended to live separately. But it's not only that that makes it odd that people throughout the whole of the British Isles were building these stone circles for 3,000 years. It's also that they weren't just the same people. You've got the original inhabitants of the Prince Charles, known as the uh, Neolithic people, the New Stone Age people. Then around 2500 BC, a new wave of migrants arrived from continental Europe, uh, who we know were different because they buried their dead in a different way. Uh, a few hundred years later, there was a second wave, also buried their dead in a different way, so presumably had some other kind of religion. And this happened around five times. New waves of people arriving in Britain, they came across uh, the English Channel by uh, simple boats, but over uh, you know, many decades arrived in vast numbers. And these people merged with the native British population on many occasions, yet throughout this entire period, they continued to build these stone circles to pretty much the same design. Now, if you have a new religion arriving and continuing to practice their religion, as we can gather from the way they buried their dead in different ways, it would suggest that whatever reason the stone circles were being built was not for some religious purpose, but in exactly the same way as when people first developed how to smelt iron, then the Iron Age moved to all sorts of different cultures, regardless of their religious backgrounds, Egypt, Mesopotamia, India, all over the place. The use of iron spread out because it served a very practical purpose over and beyond anything to do with religion. So it seems that in Britain, the building of stone circles may have had some practical purpose. But I want to go back to what you said just a few minutes ago when you talked about these cultures that were building the stone circles, and you said they had no beasts of burden, no no horses or oxen. They had no roads to transport uh, anything, basically, maybe some paths, but that was about it. And to think that they were moving these very, in some cases, massive stone blocks from place to place to erect them in the form of these stone circles makes that an even more amazing feat, doesn't it? Absolutely. Stonehenge, for example, started off as not the impressive monument we know today, but a more simple structure of around about 60 stones, freestanding stones about six feet high in a circle. Now, those stones, known as blue stones, because when they're wet, they have a kind of blue tinge to them, were dragged all the way from South Wales. Now, Stonehenge is in central southern England, around about 130 miles away from where the stones were actually quarried. Now, why they needed those particular stones is another mystery, but how they transported them is perhaps the largest uh, unsolved enigma. And it's thought now that because the quarries where they were uh, got from was not far away from the sea. And it is thought that it's possible that they put these stones on simple barges and transported them firstly by sea and then up rivers 
to within around about 20 miles of Stonehenge. That in its own right is quite a feat, but then they've got to drag them across 20 miles of open countryside. And it is thought, and archeologists have reconstructed this by getting about 200 people to lash ropes to stones, put them on wooden rollers that they keep moving from the back to the front. And they have managed to do this. So it was possible. Many of the stone circles and then the later Stonehenge that we know with the much larger 15-foot stones, which are called sarsen stones, made from sarsen sandstone, they were dragged from, uh, from closer, maybe five, ten miles away. But it is still some accomplishment to drag them for so far across open countryside. But as I say, archaeologists have shown that it, it could have been done. But the amount of people necessary to quarry and then ship these stones, and remember, these people... And when the original stone circles were built, were still in the Stone Age, and they were hacking away at these stones using uh, animal antlers for picks. They had flint or stone axes and wickerwork baskets to carry away the rubble. I mean, it's possible it's been reconstructed to show how it could have been done, but the vast numbers of people involved in doing it, it would have taken perhaps over a million work hours of vast numbers of a population working round the clock to do it. And in the meantime, they still have to feed themselves and clothe, clothe themselves, which was a full-time occupation to begin with. And I think the reason they were suddenly able to do this, I mean, the whole population of the British Isles back at that time was not more, many more than 100 or 200,000. Yeah. And the people that were building these stone circles lived in communities of only a couple of hundred people. So it took some astonishing organization and no one quite knows how that occurred. Uh, looking ahead at some shows we've got coming up so you know what's on the schedule. Tomorrow night, James Willis will be here to talk about one of the greatest stories in rock and roll history, and that is the Paul is Dead conspiracy. The idea that Paul McCartney was killed in a car accident in the uh, mid-60s, and it was covered up by the Beatles, yet some of the Beatles included uh, clues in their music and on their album covers to actually expose the truth. Uh, and that whole thing went on for some time. It's a great story, and James Willis will be talking about that tomorrow night. Friday night is, of course, a best-of program. Monday, it's all about numerology with returning guest Glynis McCants. She's known as the numbers lady. She'll talk about numerology, plus she'll take your calls and do readings for listeners uh, on the program Monday night. Tuesday, Daniel Freedom will be with us to talk about uh, the Bible from a scientific perspective. He is a religion and mysticism student and an engineer. He has an interesting perspective and a book about the topic. And then Wednesday, looking ahead a whole week now, Cindy McGill will return to the program. She is a master dream interpreter, and she'll talk about what dreams mean, and she'll take your calls and actually give you specific meanings of dreams that you may have been having. A lot of great stuff going on tonight as well. We're talking with Graham Phillips about his new book called Wisdom Keepers of Stonehenge. If you want to join the conversation, the number is 844-687-7669. And we'll take your calls and questions uh, throughout the course of this program. So we've been talking about Stonehenge and, and uh, your book, Graham. Um, did we determine, and I think you've thrown some numbers around, but do we know exactly when Stonehenge was built? 
5,000 years ago, give or take a few years. So that would put us, you know, and, and the interesting thing is when you start talking about dates that far back, you lose track of how long a thousand years actually is. Um, you know, for us in the United States, this country is about 200, what, 40 years old. Um, so put it in perspective. When you're talking thousands of years, you're talking about many, many histories and many, many uh, nations and many, many people coming and going. And we are also talking about a time that is, it precedes the uh, the uh, pyramids in Giza, does it not? It does. The pyramids in Giza were about four and a half thousand years old. <clears throat> so it's uh, it is a long time ago. If give put it in some kind of context, uh, Genghis Khan, um, he was invading everywhere around about eight hundred years ago. The Vikings had already conquered most of Britain, been kicked out and left by a thousand years ago. Um, so it's it's a long time. And do we know exactly who built it? They're known as the Neolithic people. Neolithic means new Stone Age. Um, it was a point in history when people were still using stone and uh, simple tools before they started using metal. And the first metal they began to use for tools was bronze. And that didn't really start in Britain until around about, uh, it didn't really get going until about a thousand years after the first part of Stonehenge was built. Um, Now, these Neolithic people um, didn't build Stonehenge in one go. The original Stonehenge, as I mentioned earlier, was a fairly simple structure of six foot high stones in a ring. The smaller circle, but much more grandiose construction that we know today, which consisted of 15 foot high stones with in a great big circle with other stones called lintel stones placed along the top to form a continuous ring of square arches with other bigger stones in the middle. That wasn't erected until about 500 years after the original stone circle and the outer stones were then moved in to create a smaller stone circle inside the uh, ring of Stonehenge that we know today. How we know this is because archaeologists have used ground sensing radar equipment to discover where the original stones were placed. Um, So it was built over a long period of time in stages. And what's fascinating is that people who were involved in building these later part of Stonehenge, this later construction, were involved a completely new people who came across from Europe, and they were known as the Beaker people because they buried their dead in graves and the body was holding a small uh, pottery vessel or beaker. So they're known as the Beaker people. And what's fascinating is although they had a different way of burying their dead, to the original Neolithic people uh, who didn't use beakers in the graves. They had a different religion, yet they too were involved in the building of Stonehenge. And other stone circles that were built after that involved yet new uh, migrants to Britain who, again, as I've said, had different burial traditions and so therefore 
had different religious ideas, but still continued to work together to create these stone circles. How much of what we see today of Stonehenge represents what the complete structure was at the point it was uh, it was in its entirety? Astonishingly, quite a lot of it. Um, there are still quite a few of the stones that survive with the arch in lintels across the top. Um, obviously, they've weathered away over the centuries. But if anybody wants to see what Stonehenge originally looked like, um, a complete replica, full size, of the original Stonehenge has actually been made in all places in Australia. They haven't done one in England. They've done one in Australia. So if anybody wants to type into Google Australian Stonehenge, you will have a, loads of pictures <laughs> there of what it originally looked like. Do we know if there was any um, other uh, materials used that may have uh, decomposed, whether there was a wooden component to this structure or, you know, other animal hide or anything else? Uh, Have we determined that? Well, it didn't have a roof, as far as anybody knows, but it's thought that before there was a stone circle, it was actually a wooden circle. Um, Again, they've determined this by excavating the ground to find the remains or the the organic material that would once have been big large posts that were put in circles and in fact not far from Stonehenge there's the uh, site called Woodhenge which is believed to have been built before Stonehenge purely out of wooden posts but obviously at a certain point they thought Wooden stone circles are nowhere near either efficient for whatever they were doing with stone circles or impressive enough and started quarrying stone. Now, if the, if the structure was started, the construction was started about 5,000 years ago, uh, was it about 3,000 years after that that the Romans showed up? I'm not exactly sure when the Romans came into uh, the British Isles. Absolutely. About 3,000 years later, Julius Caesar tried to invade Britain, uh, stayed here for a while and then went home, not because he couldn't beat the British, but mainly because he had problems back in Rome. Uh, That was in 55 BC. And then about 100 years later, in 43 AD, the Romans finally invaded Britain under the Emperor Claudius. And it was during that kind of 100-year period, around about the same, you know, in the middle of that period is when Jesus is said to have lived. So that's what the period you're talking about. Britain came into the historical age. In other words, the Romans brought writing to Britain and they were able to start recording what the people at that time uh, were doing. But right up until then, we have no written records. One of the things that I noticed, a common feature with uh, at least several of these stone circles, is a trench that surrounds them. Do we know what the purpose of the trench is? The short answer to that is no. What's fascinating, what they did is around, uh, Stonehenge has got one. Um, the, not the small, some of the smaller stone circles were perhaps 50 feet across and composed of maybe 20 stones. Some of them only three or four feet high. The larger ones, the stones go up to perhaps 10, even 10 feet or even higher. 
Um, and some of the stone circles are maybe a hundred feet wide. There are some really huge stone circles, like about 20 miles north of Stonehenge, there's a stone circle called Avebury, which is so large, it surrounds half a village. It's the largest of the stone circles. It was constructed of around about <clears throat> 100 stones in the outer circle, um, some of them weighing as much as 40 tonnes, much bigger than anything at Stonehenge. And inside this circle, there were other smaller circles. But all around that, that this is a thousand. I mean, the Stonehenge we now know is about a hundred feet in diameter. This one is about a thousand feet in diameter, and it was surrounded by a circular ditch and embankment. Uh, the ditch and embankment are about thirty feet deep and thirty feet high, and that's now after years of erosion. So it would have been very much deeper and taller. Um, and quite a lot of these larger stone circles had these, uh, uh, this ring of an embankment and a ditch around them. Now, they are actually known as henges. That's from where the word Stonehenge gets its name, because it has, it has one of these around it. But what's fascinating is that they weren't built for defensive purposes. If you're going to build a ditch and then moat around that, to protect something, a, a village or a, a, a fort, then you have the ditch on the outside of the embankment so that the, uh, the aggressors have to firstly climb through a ditch, probably filled with water. Then they have to clamber up a, uh, the, the ramparts and upon the top of which there was usually some kind of wooden stockade. Now, the, problem, the thing about the henges henge earthworks surrounding stone circles is they have the ditch on the inside which makes the whole thing ludicrously impractical to defend from invaders from the outside so they must have had some other kind of purpose and what i find fascinating is that all of these henge monuments surrounding the larger stone circles are built in this backwards way with the ditch on the in on the inside of the embankment where a Stonehenge actually has the embankment on the inside of the ditch, as if it was built for defensive purposes. So it actually isn't a henge. So what's fascinating is Stonehenge is the one big stone circle in the British Isles that isn't actually a henge. <laughs> well, one more question about the construction. Um, you know, we see uh, the stones that are above the ground. Are those stones placed on the ground or are they implanted into the ground? Is there some part of uh, that stone that's below the surface of the ground? About a third of the stone needs to be below the ground in order to keep it standing upright. Yeah. So if you've got a six-foot stone, in reality, it's nine-foot long. So, yes, they went pretty deep. Uh, you've, In your research, you've uh, uncovered or discerned that Stonehenge may have had some healing properties, and that may have been part of its use. Yes, what's fascinating is that various stones in stone circles are aligned specifically to particularly bright stars at certain times of the year. Archaeologists have thought that this is so that they could uh, determine when to grow crops and so forth. But for the accuracy 
that these stone circles give you as a kind of calc as, as, as a as a calendar you wouldn't need that for ordinary food crops but what the romans tell us and this is fascinating because there's actually roman writings that i have discovered that actually tell us what the stone circles were used for and the people the priesthood who used them were actually dis using them to discover exactly when to grow, cultivate, cut, uh, very specific times of the year, medicinal crops for uh, curative purposes. And they tell us that by doing this, they had cures for, they had anesthetics, they had anesthesias, they had all sorts of different curative potions. And astonishingly, from what we're told, they even managed to discover a cure for cancer. So the actual meaning of stone circles is they were probably used as a way of determining how to create cures. We, uh, we're going to go to break, and then we have one more segment with you. We've got about 30 seconds here. I've mentioned your website a couple of times. Where's the best place for people to go to find your work? Is it the website? GrahamPhillips.net is the website. I also have a YouTube channel, Graham Phillips Author, where you can see all sorts of short films I've made about the sort of things we've been discussing. So you can actually see these places. Yeah, I actually watched a few of them prior to the interview today. They're very well done and, and very informative, and they're nice and short. You can actually watch them very quickly. Yeah, uh, they're only three to five minutes long each. And as I say, it's Graham Phillips Author youtube let's talk a little bit more about this medicinal uh, properties of stonehenge um when you uncovered this information and started to put all of this together and bring these ideas uh and encapsulate them is there any way that uh, or even has it been done has anybody been able to do any kind of uh, scientific research to support any of this information What's fascinating is that one of the Roman authors, a man called Pliny the Elder, writing in the first century AD, talks about how the stone circles were used to cultivate um, mistletoe. Now, mistletoe, if you eat it at the wrong time of the year, is poisonous. You have to take the berries and certain parts of the plant. At a very specific time, you have to cut the... Um, the necessary part of the plant at a particular time of the night. Now, why would that matter? Well, certain plants will only produce particular chemicals at particular times, say, of the night to attract night-pollinating insects like moths. So this chemical is only available at certain times, so you have to have pretty precise timings. So if you're standing in the middle of a stone circle and a particular star is rising over one of the stones, you say, ah, now is the time to do that. So, okay, that's how they knew how to extract something from mistletoe, for example. And what's fascinating is that today, What's happened is in chemotherapy, scientists are now using a extract from mistletoe, seemingly the same as what the Romans said that the ancient Britons were doing, as part of a cure for certain types of cancer. So in that respect, yes, it has been shown that uh, they were onto something. Given the fact that Stonehenge was built 5,000 or so years ago, and given the fact that many thousands, at least 
two or three thousands of those 5,000 years were really warlike uh, times across the British Isles. Is it a miracle that these structures, particularly Stonehenge, has survived uh, all of these millennia? Yes, it is absolutely astonishing. And I think the reason they did survive for at least those 3,000 years and were still used is because they served a practical purpose. If they were just religious monuments, the next lot of people to turn up, and as I said before, there's at least five series of migrations of new peoples to Britain during this period, um, they would have been abandoned. One culture takes over from the other, and no, we don't want this anymore. Uh, And it's because that they served a practical purpose. Like, for example, if a country invades another country and that country is smelting iron, well, they're going to adopt the smelting of iron regardless of their particular religious bent. So it's because it has a practical purpose. And I think this is why the stone circle survived for so long. I mean, especially in a time when castles were being erected for defensive purposes all around the countryside, it seems like those stones would have made pretty good castle material. So uh, so they must have had uh, a reason to keep them in place um, for a long time anyway. Absolutely. I went after the Romans arrived for the last 2000 years. You've then got the, the, uh, the introduction of Christianity, for example. Um, again, the reason that they did survive is because the early Christians didn't come along and say, right, get rid of all this stuff. They, by this time, the reasons behind the building of stone circles have been forgotten during the Dark Ages. But what happened is that the Christians thought, right, These people venerated these stone circles. Rather than knock them down, let's build our churches and early chapels inside or near to stone circles so that the local population could still have a familiar place to go and do whatever they did. But in this case, they would be going to chapels and churches to be healed by priests by being in the close proximity of saints' relics, bones of saints that the church taught at that time could cure people. So they basically kept a lot of these places intact, but built their own uh, chapels there so that people would, well, it wasn't too much of a cultural shock. So that's how a lot of them survived. All right. I have to ask you this, um, because it's been discussed on a lot of other programs, and I think probably even here at some point, there are people that contend that structures like Stonehenge have an alien connection. Do you believe any of that? Do you think that's even a possibility? Well, I'm not quite sure about aliens or people from other dimensions or from a lost civilization, but there are mysteries. The various cures that they seem to have developed from what the Romans tell us, um, how did they do it if it was just a I mean, as I said, I was talking about mistletoe. You need to eat that stuff at the wrong time and you're dead. So was it a case of trial and error? And remember, there are many, many of these various medicinal plants that they were using, a lot of which uh, are, are not conducive to health. If you've got people that, well, let's try this, see if that works. No, he's dead, right? You try that one. No, he's dead. At the end of the day, you'd have wiped out the population by the time you'd got round to it by trial and error. So some people might suggest that, well, there's got to have been some sort of knowledge about medicinal properties, the chemicals that made these things up, in order for them to do this without wiping themselves out first. 
Where did that come from? Now, whether it's aliens, other dimensional beings, a lost civilization, I've no idea. That's not really what my book's about. It's just what they did rather than how they originally did it. But um, there are certainly mysteries about how they came up with this stuff in the first place. As you learn more and more about Stonehenge specifically, but these stone circles and the culture that built them, can you tie any of our practices today back to what they were doing with these stone circles? Um, I suppose you could say in some ways that the, the, the larger settlements had the bigger stone circles, like Avery, as I mentioned, which is a thousand feet in diameter. And then you've got Stonehenge, which had large settlements around it. That was the most elaborate structure. But other smaller communities had smaller stone circles. I mean, I went to one the other day, which is only about 20 feet across, and the stones are only about two feet high. Uh, I suppose you could say, I mean, that the, the stone circles probably came to take on some religious or ceremonial significance as well as just being healing sanctuaries. But today I would say that if you've got uh, the smaller stone circles are like parish churches, the larger stone circles like Stonehenge were like cathedrals. But if you're to say to me, what was Stonehenge? I would say that originally it was some kind of medical facility, if you like, a prehistoric hospital. And that's groundbreaking, isn't it? I mean, that that that's not a concept that you hear uh, or we've heard up until this point. Um, you know, the idea that it was it was a calendar of some sorts or some type of religious site. Uh, those ideas have been circulated for a long time. But th- this concept, I think, is new with your book, is it not? It is brand new. Um, it, 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 because the book's only just out, it's gonna, we're going to have to see exactly how the archaeological and historical communities take to it. I'm sure some people are going to try and tear it apart, but the evidence is there. I present it all in the book. I give all the references, all the work that's been done by archaeologists and historians, and uh, we'll have to see what happens. But, yes, it is new, and if I say so myself, groundbreaking material. Yeah, it certainly is. Graham, um, because I know you never sleep and you never rest, what is next on your uh, agenda? Uh, You must have your sights on something. I'm going to investigate Pandora's box, the box that uh, the ancient Greek mythical hero Pandora opened and released all the evils upon the world. Was it just made up? Or is there something behind this ancient artifact? So that's what I'm doing next. I, I, you know, the YouTube videos are well done and they present a lot of information in a short period of time. I assume you you intend to continue to produce those? Oh, yeah. I mean, I've got only at the moment I've done about three, I think it is, about the stone circles. Over the next few weeks, I'm, I'm working on one at the moment, I'm going to be doing a lot more of these short videos about various aspects of the megalithic culture and the stone circles and even ley lines that some people believe that the stone circles and other standing stones are aligned in uh, across the countryside for some reason. So I'm going to be investigating that in my little videos and uh, how the culture began, how it ended, And, uh, yeah, there'll be plenty more of those videos going up. 
We, we, we talked about it briefly in the beginning of our discussion tonight, but you've done uh, several works on historical references or historical events or historical artifacts, um, including things like uh, the parting of the Red Sea. Um, will you be doing uh, uh, videos related to those things? And I also wanted to ask you, because your work seems to substantiate or support uh, many of the biblical references of the same things, um, how, how has that work been received? Uh, very well. In fact, uh, I mean, I've had lots of television documentaries made about my work that if you go to my YouTube channel, I've got links to those that have been uploaded to, to YouTube, uh, professional TV documentaries. Perhaps the one I would suggest that people watch, because it's my favourite, is an hour-long documentary that was made, uh, I think it was for the uh, National Geographic Channel, I can't remember now who made it, made a couple of years ago. It's one hour about my search for the staff of Moses. It's really well put together. Because I'm older now than I was when it was actually done, they have an actor playing the part of me who they've made <laughs> look a bit more like Indiana Jones than I do. <laughs> Searching for the last, the lost staff of Moses, which with with which he's supposed to have brought down the plagues of Egypt and parted the Red Sea. So, if you go to my YouTube channel, you'll see a a, a series of films, TV documentaries I've made in a, in a separate playlist. Uh, have a look through some of those. Graham, it's been a fascinating discussion. I'm looking forward to having you back. And before we let you go, again, give us. Uh, we've talked about your YouTube channel several times, talked about your website. But again, where can people get a hold of the books? The books are all available now in the States and in the UK, I believe, on um, on Amazon. And they can also be got from the publishers, Inner Traditions. And they should be in the shops, certainly in the United States. Will you promise to come back and have another conversation with us? I'd absolutely love to. Thank you so much. Again, Graham, thank you for being here. Uh, thank you. Graham Phillips. Again, the website is grahamphillips.net, and the book is called Wisdom Keepers of Stonehenge, The Living Libraries and Healers of Megalithic Culture. Um, that was Paul McCartney, by the way, as our bumper music there. And didn't Paul McCartney, he did a classical piece or oh, the, some, something called Standing Stone. Oh, I was thinking of the Liverpool Oratorio. Well, he did that. That, that was the, yeah, and Standing Stone is something different that he did as well. Um, but I, now that uh, we had this conversation with Graham Phillips, the Standing Stone thing, because I did a little research about the topic before the show, obviously, and, um, you know, all across uh, the British Isles, there are these stones that are these uh, monolithic stones just standing in the middle of fields, and and um, he referenced them and talked about the fact they think they might be some kind of, some kind of um, lines that he referenced. Mm-hmm. Um, there are too many of the stones have been demolished or moved or removed uh, to be able to, to discern that for uh, certain. However, I think that's what the standing stone thing was was uh, that McCartney was talking about. Oh, yeah. was all about. I know it was a long way to around <laughs> saying I kind <laughs> to of the connection between Paul start, McCartney yeah, and Stonehenge. It's, it's, it's starting to make sense now. Um, but that's a fascinating site. I've never, I have not been there myself yet. I'd like to get there. I'd Nor have I. I'd like to see Stonehenge, and and I'd love to explore some of these other sites too. And uh, they're pretty, they're pretty phenomenal. Um, he mentioned a few of them. And if you check out the videos on his YouTube page, he's got three videos about three different stone sites that are pretty spectacular. And you don't hear about these other ones very mm-hmm. often, you know. But everybody knows about Stonehenge, especially if you've seen European Vacation with uh, <laughs> or, Chevy Chase or uh, Spinal Tap. 
Yeah, that's right. That's right. Spinal Tap. That's right. It's another good reference. Um, let's see. Tomorrow night, we've got James Willis coming up. And again, uh, playing Paul McCartney there was very appropriate because we're going to be talking about the Paul is Dead conspiracy that was um, started as a rumor and turned out to be something more than that as people eagerly and aggressively looked for clues uh, among uh, the Beatles' music and their images on album covers, that kind of thing. And it's pretty cool. I mean, mm. I think people have some pretty va- vivid Im- imaginations. <laughs> sure. You know, I remember some of those clues. Like, one of them was uh, obviously in the, was the Strawberry Fields where they think they hear John Lennon saying, Paul is dead, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. which he later said was actually him saying cranberry sauce. <laughs> um, and then on the cover of Abbey Road, uh, the, the little... VW Bug that sits in that picture mm-hmm. uh, has a license plate that says two two eight IF, and mm-hmm. they're yeah. saying that is indicating that Paul McCartney would if have been right, would have been twenty eight if he had lived. A lot of cool things that mm-hmm. that went into that uh, rumor and propagating it among other people. So uh, that'll be an interesting discussion. Yeah, you know, I just came up, I came across another uh, Beatles clue hoax type thing. Um, the band Klaatu, most well known for uh, interplanetary craft that uh, you've played you just played that song uh recently yeah, calling occupants of interplanetary craft right so um when their first album came out um they they chose not to include any photos or any names of any band members it was completely anonymous and that coupled with a beatlesy sound led some journalists i don't know if it was paid off or not but to 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 speculate that it was a, a beatles project um and this this myth, you know, went went wild. Uh, of course, they they loved it because it sold records. For sure, them. <laughs> it would. Yeah, anybody if anybody wants to pretend that my band is the Beatles or in, incognito, they'll probably sell some records. Yeah. Um, anyway, great discussion tomorrow night with James Wells. Looking forward to that. That's going to do it for tonight. Thank you for joining us, everyone. It's Beyond Reality Radio. We'll catch you next time. Beyond Reality Radio is hosted by Jason Hawes and J.V. Johnson and produced by Alexandria Johnson and Slick Eddie Edwards for Intercom Radio. Beyond Reality Radio is distributed by Westwood One Radio Networks. Stop by our Facebook page and say hello. Follow the hosts on Facebook as well. For Jason Hawes, follow at JasonHawes.Taps. For J.V. Johnson, follow at JVJParanormal. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Radio or you have a suggestion for a guest, contact Slick Eddie Edwards at SlickEddieEdwards at gmail.com. Be sure to visit our chat room as well at beyondrealityradio.com. Thanks for listening.